everybody. This is Dan Sullivan, and this is another episode of the podcast Anything and Everything with Jeff Madoff. And Jeff, it always surprises me what we're going to talk about, which I think is consistent with the title of the podcast series. Yes, where we start is no indication of where we're going to end up or go along the way. That is true. That's right. Jeff, last time we were just ending the podcast and you brought up a whole issue of archetypes and I was noticing that Meghan Markle has a new podcast series called Archetypes. You know, oh, really? And, yeah, yeah. And I was looking at, you know, Jung, the famous psychiatrist, psychologist, I'm not sure what he was, but he is responsible for, I think, really bringing this back into the late 19th century, early 20th century, because it had started. And I remember it very clearly because I went to a college where we actually read Plato, not textbooks about Plato. But Plato, I think, may have been the first person where we have writing to save it, where he talked about that Everything that you see around you is just a watered-down version of a universal archetype, and that the archetypes exist as a separate reality, and that what we actually see is a kind of a pale representative, that real life is actually just a shadow of an ultimate reality that lies above us. And that was a big breakthrough at the time because he was the first one who talked about that there's actually a higher reality that we strive to get to, but we're not actually in it. Well, I would posit, as a matter of fact, I will posit that archetypes have been with us since early communication. Yeah. And before the written word, there was the oral tradition of stories. You can go back to the Bible, and I think David and Goliath are archetypes. Yes. Homer with Odysseus. Yeah. And so I think that probably the person that modernized it in the storytelling is Joseph Campbell Mm -hmm. in The Hero's Journey. Mm-hmm. where, you know, he talked about the hero and the archetypes along the way. And the interesting thing I think that we started to touch on last time was how these basically, if you will, to use modern vernacular, the avatars, you know, the online avatars for those archetypes. Mm-hmm. I think that social media has allowed the idea of an archetype to spread in a way that, of course, no one could have foreseen. Mm -hmm. You know, because then the ultimate social media archetype is also a transactional interchange, Mm -hmm. which I think is changes the whole nature of what an archetype is. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's true. I think all the media, starting with radio, I mean, if you talk about the first where you had electricity involved in it, you know, were the early movies, then radio came in, and then television, and theater has always made use of archetypes. I was reading quite a good essay the other day on Hamlet, and how much Hamlet is the architect for the tortured person who kind of understands what's going on, but can't take action. And there's the long monologue. I mean, the character of Hamlet, I think, has more stage time than any other theatrical character in history, and oftentimes just talking to himself. Freud said that he thinks that Shakespeare himself is a crossover point where individuals in the audience are let in on what's going on in a character's mind. You know, he goes off, monologues, goes off. And he's got lots of characters who do this, especially the tragedies. And the history plays, there's always this, you know, Falstaff goes aside and has a a discussion with himself. The word Hamlet-like is 
very much used in politics of someone who clearly has great capability but overthinks things and then doesn't take action. How does an archetype become an archetype? What is the defining characteristic and sort of how does it land on that particular archetypal character, if you will? Well, I think the hero, obviously, uh, someone who's a hero, you know, that's one of the major archetypes. The hero was needed just because virtually so much of human history, both oral and written, is about an individual takes on personal responsibility for dangers that are threatening the tribe. My sense is that it was very, very important from the very, very beginning, if you had a gathering of people who faced all sorts of external dangers, that there was certain individuals in the tribe who took it upon themselves to protect and also to solve problems that nobody else in the tribe could do. So I think the hero emerged very early. But I wonder if that hero emerging, is that also, were some of these, how can I articulate this? You can't have a hero without a villain. Mm -hmm. And the hero's journey is not a hero's journey if there's no obstacles along the way. Yeah. In some cases, it becomes a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if those early archetypes were more to keep people in line rather than inspire action. Well, I think, first of all, there's a structuring that had to take place in any community. So I, I think that there's a series of expanding groups. I think everything started off basically with the family as being the basic organizing group. And that comes down to today. You know, it comes down today that there's a very, very interesting sides, but since we're talking about is something, but we can talk about anything else, that in wealth inequality in the United States, it's always talked about that it's the greatest division in income and wealth is actually between families, but it's not true. The actual greatest inequality is actually within families. You'll have family with you know, mother, father, and a group of siblings, and there'll be one of the siblings who just succeeds and achieves in a very, very disproportionate manner. That would be true in my own family. I've just gone way, way, way beyond not only anyone in my family, but anyone in all the relative networks that I know that I've done more. Mm -hmm. And I know because I help finance the grandchildren of my siblings. I have six siblings, and at the grandchildren level, I've paid for half the tuition now for a dozen of them, and I think Uncle Dan is seen as a real hero. <laughs> yeah, he's seen as a real, real hero, you know, but it's only half the tuition, so I say I'll pay for half the tuition. And the reason is there's so many grants. I mean, literally, there's so much money for college that's available in the American public from government, from foundations, from other funding bodies, that literally everybody, if they were a bit of a detective and actually thought things out, literally everybody could go to uh, college and university. I mean, I imagine finding one's way through the bureaucratic thickets of grants and everything else, that's, that's a pursuit in and of itself. You know, if you have that capability. Yeah, well, it was my case. I borrowed every cent except for living expenses. I borrowed every cent to go through college in 67 to 71. And when I was finished college, I owed, you know, this is 1971. I owed $16,000, you know, and I paid it off over about a six-year period. I paid it off. But the living expenses came from the fact that I served in the Army and I had three years they gave you a month and a half GI Bill for every month that you were in the service. So I had three years, 36 months of a living expense money. It just perfectly handled my living expenses when I was at college. So the borrowing and the GI Bill were what got me through college. I couldn't have afforded to go to college if I hadn't had that. You know. But I sense that the 
challenge is a lot bigger these days than it was in the 1960s. Yeah, I think the, the percentage of one's income that goes towards school is substantially higher now mm-hmm. you know, than it was back then. And I remember it also used to be the rule of thumb was one week's pay, one month's rent. And that's a much higher percentage now than it used to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is that it was a bit like Fannie Mae that once the government guarantees debt, the private sector takes advantage of the fact, you know, with Fannie Mae and I forget what the other large lending organization is. The universities have done the same thing. If the government will guarantee loans, then they just raise the tuition. Well, and as you and I both know people that make a very good living facilitating student loans and getting a part of that. Yep, it's part of the deal. <laughs> you know, but going back to archetypes a moment, I want to... Heroism can take, if we're just talking about heroes, I think it takes a lot of different forms and it changes from age to age what constitutes a hero. Actually, that's what I was going to bring up because now... One could argue that Steve Jobs was an archetype. I believe totally. And I think the proof of it is Elizabeth Holmes. In terms of her imitation of his presentation and just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think that replacing him... And it's interesting how we always seem to have this need to hold somebody up as kind of the archetype of of brilliance, whether it's in finance or whether it's in invention or whatever. I mean, you know, Edison marketed himself as a solo genius. He was far from it, but he marketed himself as that. He's remembered so much simply because he pioneered all of the modern structures of technological progress in the sense that he had a vast research lab in Menlo, in Menlo Park in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And he had 100 technicians, engineers, scientists who were on the payroll, and they were expected to bring out so many new patents. The other thing is he really understood the power of intellectual property law. And he also understood marketing in a way. And I think that Elon Musk has borrowed archetypal qualities from Steve Jobs. Absolutely. But he also Absolutely. went back to Tesla himself. It's not a mistake. It's not a coincidence that the name of his car is the Tesla. I think he was picking up on an archetypal image. I don't see anything wrong with it. It's just part of our inheritance that we have these archetypes. They're outside reference points that if you imitate to a certain degree, it communicates a lot right off the bat. Yeah, I don't know how accurate necessarily that communication ends up being. I think it becomes more mythic than actual, but I don't see anything wrong with it either, Mm -hmm. unless there is a deception that is going on that costs people money or well-being or something. You know, then you're a con, you're not an archetype. But you could be an archetype con. I mean, Fagan in Dickens' novels was an archetype con, right? You know, Madoff was an archetype con. Probably even more so was Ponzi from mm-hmm. Massachusetts. Charles Ponzi. Yeah. So, you know, they were archetypes in terms of conning people. Yeah. And we tend to compare things, which is really interesting because, you know, the archetype for a computer is our brain, although our brain doesn't really function like a computer does. Yeah. But that's our computer. That's my next book. You are not a computer. My next little quarterly book. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. You are not a computer. Because the computer is held out by certain individuals in the big tech world that at a certain point, the computer will replace human intelligence because speed is very, very deceptive. You know, I mean, movies seem magical, but what makes them magical is the speed at which images seem to come alive. I think the archetypes can be either positive or negative. Mm -hmm. I mean, anyone who shows the least bit of, you know, authoritarianism is immediately 
called Hitler-like. You know, it's like Hitler-like. You know, Hitler is an archetype. He's an evil archetype, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it's called Godwin's Law. There's actually a law called Godwin's Law that the first person to lose an argument is the first one who mentions either Hitler or Nazi. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Nazis are, I mean, they're just a permanent evil archetype. Right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Joe McCarthy. McCarthy is a evil archetype. Right. You know. And it, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think <laughs> Hitler ruined that little chaplain-like mustache and the comb over for everybody since. <laughs> you know, you, you really aren't going to think about maybe I should grow a little mustache like that or comb my hair over. <laughs> no, no. That's, that's gone. <laughs> no. No, no, don't go there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But I think it's really fascinating. Because the question arises, you know, it's an epistemological question, which is what is real? And what is that real archetype? I mean, you know, the Superman is an archetype. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why do certain things stick? And I believe there's something that I call the myth of replication, where other people try to do it, but they just, I don't think that Elon Musk called himself, his ego is way too big. For him to think that he got it from Steve Jobs, you know, he's who he is, right? But the public, mm-hmm. the way the public... Yeah, I think works. it's ascribed. I mean, I think Elizabeth Holmes was intentional. Yes. I mean, it was such a big hit when people thought it was legitimate because here's a woman version of, you know, a high-tech male archetype, right. you know, and I think she consciously developed it. I mean, she even took voice lessons to lower her yes. voice so that she had this sort of husky voice, which she actually doesn't have. And you could tell at the trial that she didn't have it anymore. She was, I mean, it's more of what you would consider a woman to have that type of voice. And then she took on the victim architect. Yeah, the archetype, yes. That it was her partner who manipulated her and that she was innocent. So the Victimhood has become a great archetype in our time. To be a victim is, it's got a ranking, you know, there's a a race to the top of the victimhood. Yeah. Well, you know, when you mentioned Elizabeth Holmes, interesting character because in my surmising, her attempts to emulate Steve Jobs from the black turtleneck to the way she modulated her voice and everything else, what that said to me was, she was a con, you know, and she was a con in raising money against a product that she knew didn't work. And without, you know, getting into the weeds of all of that, I think that what's interesting is that the public, I think you're right, ascribes that. Mm -hmm. And I think people can try to be that. But, you know, in her case, and in the case of many, there's that myth of replication that I call it, which is you're not going to come across like that. Mm-hmm. And her intent, I think, was, I don't think her intent was to con, but I think the con was a means to an end. Well, she was a risk taker in the sense that if she could get enough upfront money, I think there's stages that a con artist goes through. And the first one is that you hope that the constant inflow of new investment pays off the previous investments. Well, especially in a Ponzi. That is a Ponzi, right? What you Yeah, said. well, it yes. is a Ponzi. You know, it's like Social Security. Social Security was a government calculation because it was introduced in 1936. But, you know, it paid off at 65. Mm-hmm. But the average lifespan when it came in was around 50. As a matter of fact, the first 60 years from 36 to 96, a 60-year period, the average payout was 29 months hmm. after retirement age. But the vast majority of people didn't even make it to retirement age 65. So it was a calculation on the part of the government is that the new investments coming in from new workers would always pay off the growing demands from those who entered into Social Security. And what they didn't figure on was a really remarkable extension of lifespan during that period of time. 
And now they're talking, I mean, there's serious talk of raising retirement to 70. Structurally, that's a major change. But it makes sense. I mean, look at us. <laughs> you know, I deferred my Social Security till I was 70, you know, because it was advantageous to do so. But you're waging a bet, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that your calculus is that I would have to live to be I don't, I don't remember what the years are, but yeah, would have to live to be X plus in order for that waiting for five years to pay off, you know, so you get a higher rate, but you don't net more until four years into it or something, you know, mm -hmm. so yeah. it's kind of fascinating. But why do we need heroes? Well, I think to a certain extent, people don't sense it in themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very clearly needed. You know, I mean, history sort of proves. I mean, who does history record as some of the most important people? They record heroes. I mean, uh, there's no question that without Lincoln, the whole issue would never have been solved. Mm -hmm. The growing apart of two parts of the United States in a very fundamental way would not have been solved except for Lincoln, you know. So how would you define a heroic act? What is it that makes a hero? Well, I think part of it is an articulation of the present situation that's really better than what anyone else is doing. I think it's partially a communication power. Everybody's suspecting that something's not right, but every time their thinking starts to approach a decision or a decisive action that would bring things to a head where it had to be decided one way or another. I think that's part of a hero's power. You know, there's a power there that they can say what everybody else is kind of sensing, but nobody wants to think it through completely. They don't want to think it through because at a certain point, you have to line up on one side or the other of the issue. You're going to be either courageous or you're going to be defined as cowardly in a general sense, the society is. Yeah. So does courageous behavior, in order to be courageous, let's say that's a condition of heroism? Yeah, I think it's swimming upstream. You know, you're, you're not going with the flow. You're saying, nope, I'm going to take a stand here. There's a taking a stand. I mean, that's certainly a thing. And it's when the person takes the stand, I remember there's a speech that Lincoln gave, and I think it was, might have been before his election, or it might have been shortly after his election. And what he made was a prediction that the United States had the potential to be the greatest economy in the world and the greatest society in the world. You know, he was looking forward a hundred years. He was looking forward to, essentially to 1960 when he made it. You know, and he went on. His speeches were very short. I mean, a Lincoln speech was never more than 10 or 12 minutes. And he just said, you know, it's going to happen. But he said, everything I'm predicting here will not happen if we don't decide this right now. We have to decide this right now. You know, and the attack on Fort Sumter, you know, South Carolina, the attack happened as soon as Lincoln was elected. It happened within the week after Lincoln was elected. Yeah, and so it's very, very clear that he was the catalyst that started the Civil War. Catalyst, I think another thing, you're a catalyst. It takes a very complicated, complex situation, and it suddenly simplifies it, okay? It makes it binary, mm -hmm. you know, and I think architects make things binary. In the personality of an individual, all of a sudden the issue is assembled. I think that, you know, what's his name in the Ukraine? Zelensky. Never in his worst nightmare would Putin think that his biggest enemy is a five foot five Jewish comedian. Right. That's for sure. But think about that from the Jewish standpoint. The Ukraine would not have, you know, they would have reacted, they would have responded to the invasion, but they had had an invasion for eight years previously of the eastern part of their country. And he was the one who basically, you know, became the public face for not giving in. That's heroic. And in a way, an archetype. 
Yeah, he's an architect. Yeah. But the question is, so you brought up two interesting examples, one historic with Lincoln. And Lincoln made a calculation. And part of that calculation was a risk that he was aware of. Zelensky, if you will, heroism was foisted on him. Yeah. He had to behave in a certain way in order to be heroic. You know, there was risk all around him, but none of that was his choosing, right? You know, heroism was foisted on him, which, you know, he could have crumbled under that weight, but he rose to the occasion. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference when, you know, committing a heroic act? What if it's somebody that runs into the burning building and saves somebody's life? Are they a hero? Mm-hmm. You know, and they had that act like that in order to... Well, I think there's considerable risk. You know, I think that the person is speaking and then acting in a way that entails personal risk. You know, if the Russians had actually captured the government in Kiev, you know, they would have been shot. They would have been shot, you know. And if I think Lincoln had ever been captured by the Confederates, it would have been bad news for him personally. And he was very unpopular. I mean, everybody acts as if the full force of the Union was with him. They weren't. I mean, he won the election by, I think, less than 40% of the vote. You know, there were other candidates there. I may be wrong on that. I don't know the exact thing. But he was not popular. And throughout the war, there was danger that he would be Certainly, he would be defeated in 64. And a lot of people think it was the not loss. It wasn't a complete victory, but the not loss at Gettysburg was the first thing that actually started to turn things. And I think Vicksburg, when he got the right general in there, and, you know, the great hero of the war from a military standpoint was Grant. He was just very, very simple in his thinking. He says, we always outnumber them. We always have more supplies. We always have more firepower than they do. So he said, we just utilize our strengths and overpower them. You know, And he just kept doing that over and over and over again. Yeah, but is there a distinction between thinking a strategy through and making the action decision after you've thought through the strategy as best you can, like what you're talking about with Grant, that was a strategy with Lincoln and so on. And someone who has to act quickly against imminent risk, you know, is there a difference in the kind of heroism, if you will? Sure. In what that requires. But I think that's determined by circumstances. I was talking to some people who have very strong ties with Israel. And Israel, you know, really sat on the fence with this whole Ukrainian-Russian thing, you know. Well, for economic reasons. Yeah. Well, they do business with both. But the other thing is, I said, you know, you're the prime minister of Israel, and, you know, it's kind of hard, you know, because you look at the number of the Jewish people killed by Russians, it's about 1.5 million. And by the Ukrainians, it was about 1.5 million. So it's kind of hard to decide, you know. And so the whole point was that there's lots of ambivalent dimensions in almost any historic situation. History is the record of everything we weren't expecting, okay? And, you know, if you had given Ukraine, knowing what the image was of the Russian army, where they have massive numbers of soldiers, they have massive amounts of weaponry, and, you know, they had taken over the eastern part of the Ukraine. They had, you know, had the wars with Chechnya. They had been very influential in Syria. And you said, well, you know, this is going to be over in a week. And everybody was betting it was like a week, maybe a week like this. Well, we're past six months now. Right, and. Right now, the most offensive part of the war right now is on the part of the Ukrainians. And how so? The Russians are outthought. They've been out-strategized. They've been actually outshot to this point in the war. 
and they just have far better intelligence. You know, I said it's the world's first global live action weapons trade show because everybody who's got brand new weapons is giving them to the Ukraine to test out. Yeah, the Swedes and the Swiss are I mean, <laughs> are shipping them their latest weapons and they're getting rid of old inventory. Everybody's getting rid of old inventory, you know. But there's an individual at the center. This is why Churchill, you can say anything you want about him. And, you know, he had a very checkered past as a politician. He was in one party, then he switched to another party, and then he switched to another party. And he was responsible for some colossal disasters in the First World War and a lot of missteps. But both from a standpoint of articulation about the fact that under no circumstances would Britain come to any agreement with the Germans. And then withstanding the Blitz, this is before the Americans are in the war. It was just basically his articulation for everybody to understand where they were, which I think actually turned the tide. You know, and people hate it. They said, you know, he was an imperialist. He hated labor and everything else. And they said, yeah, but it all... At crucial moments, the right person has to be there at the right time to do it. And he had prepared himself his whole life for this. I mean, he had thought about this as a child and a teenager. He was going to be the great hero who saved the British Empire, as it turns out. He did, but he preserved Britain. So that raises an interesting question regarding... Question, questions, questions. What am I going to get an answer out of you? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I know which fountain to drink from. Are there new archetypes? Mm -hmm. Are there new archetypes that are being formed because circumstances in some ways are so different? Or will it always be narrowed down to the hero, the transformative character, you know, the things that we've come to learn from like Joseph Campbell and so on? Or are there new archetypes because our world is different? Well, Depending on whether the times are optimistic or pessimistic, I think the nature of the hero changes. We're right now we're in a pessimistic era, mm-hmm. okay? And it's much more of a subjective than an objective time right now. And what I mean by that is that the period of the late 1800s, probably from mid-century, The great heroes were the ones who created new technologies. You know, the railroad, the telegraph, the telephone, electricity, the internal combustion machine, and then the chemical revolution, what you could do with chemicals in terms of dyes and all sorts of solutions. And I think that that went from, first of all, it was a relatively peaceful century after the defeat of Napoleon in 1815 until the outbreak of the First World War, which was 1914. You had virtually a century where the world was fairly peaceful and there was a vast expansion of people's lives being improved by technological breakthroughs. McCormick, the inventor of the Reaper, not so much the inventor, but he was the mass producers of reapers, allowed one person in the wheat fields of America to equal the working power of 15, 16 men who would otherwise have to do this by hand. I think it was a very optimistic world, the end of the 1800s, right up till the First World War. I think since the First World War, things have been very pessimistic. Well, I think that there's some interesting things behind that. I mean, the McCormick Reaper and the cotton gin. The cotton gin, yeah, which actually saved the Confederacy. They would have fallen apart without the cotton gin, you know. I mean, it was on both sides. And that was the problem, is that uh, everybody thought at the time of the founding of the country, they thought that slavery would just die out because the new industries that the northern part of the country were already pioneering and exploring or importing from elsewhere. The economy of the Union was incredibly more powerful than the economy of the what turned out to be the Confederacy. And the cotton gin was actually the game changer. 
that I think it brought it to a head because they said that they're not going to collapse because it made cotton so cheap. And cotton was one of the great breakthroughs in the 19th century. Well, that's how Lehman Brothers got their start, was as cotton brothers. Yeah, well, the, I mean, it's really told well in the Lehman trilogy. Trilogy. Yeah. I mean, they, Brilliant. they supplied the plantation owners. I mean, everything plantation owners needed, the Lehman Brothers provided it. It was interesting, their sign, you know, they made a big thing of how the Lehman Brothers sign <laughs> changed over, well, it was... It lasted till 2007, I think, 2007, 2008, right? Something like that, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's fascinating. It's also interesting to think about the fact that two of the major innovations, the cotton gin and the reaper, these technological, if you will, innovations happened in agriculture. And, you know, the innovations that have been happening you know, have been happening in tech. And there really hasn't been that much innovation no. in the past 10 years or more, actually, which is also kind of fascinating to think about. Why is there innovation in a particular area? What makes the ground fertile, not to use another farming metaphor, but what is it that makes it fertile for innovation? You know, what causes innovation to kick in? And, and arguably, I don't even think it's arguable. The cotton gin led to mass production in weaponry, you know, and it led to mass production in automobiles. And, you know, I, I love looking at these antecedents, like what came before and what was the technology? How could you adapt that to a different, entirely different area like that, which I think is amazing. And, you know, the Civil War basically... It was breaking the back. Initially, Lincoln did not have a strong anti-slavery bent. He didn't want new slavery to continue, but it wasn't like he wanted to abolish slavery. We also realized the way to defeat the South was to destroy the economic engine of the South, which was slavery. So yeah. it's you know kind of a fascinating... And the other thing, the, the Emancipation Proclamation did not free the slaves that were in the Union states, Kentucky being a good example, because Kentucky was a Union state, but they had slaves, and he didn't free those slaves. He freed only the slaves that were in the Confederate states. <laughs> I mean, everybody talks about that, that it freed the slaves. No, it was a strategy of war to end the war. I think his assassination delayed things enormously because Johnson, who was the vice president who became president, was a Confederate. I mean, basically his sympathies were with the South. And the job of Reconstruction was haphazard. You know, slavery came back in another form pretty well. I mean, blacks in the South were technically free, but tried to vote. Right. It was hard to vote. Try to get credit to create your own farms. And there was a great flood in the southern Mississippi that went inland 30, 40 miles on both sides of the river. This was one of the greatest floods since the United States has been a country in the south part of Mississippi and the southern states. We were back in the Union, but the southern states were all given bailout loans by the state governments, but they gave no bailout loans to the black farmers. So they went to Washington, and Hoover was the president. And Hoover was, you know, he was kind of an engineer. I don't think he had much political sense. And they appealed to him, and he said, it's the state responsibility, it's not the federal government's responsibility. And so Roosevelt, who really tested the win every morning when he got up. So he said, well, if I'm president, we'll make this a national, a federal thing. And the off-year election in 30, there was a shift. And then by 32, they shifted completely to the Democrats. But that was a phenomenally important, bad decision on the part of Hoover. But he wouldn't have gotten any support for it. Yeah. It's really interesting because as you're recounting this history and certain presidents, you know, Washington being the father of our country, 
And then you probably have to wait till you get to Lincoln, where you have another archetype, yeah. which is a great emancipator. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And then Roosevelt, FDR, those are the three. That's right. There isn't a fourth so far. That's right. I mean, I think it could be argued, I don't know how successfully, but, you know, was Kennedy an archetype? I think sometimes you can be an archetype for a particular era, but the gloss goes away. Well, he's certainly been an architect, certainly on the Democratic side, that particular individuals have fashioned themselves Kennedy-like. Yes. I remember the first one that I can remember was Lindsay, the mayor of New York, who positioned himself as a Kennedy-like person, you know. I mean, a particular haircut is kind of all it took at a particular time just to be... Yeah, and I think Bill Clinton very definitely. There's a great picture of Clinton as a teenager shaking hands with John Kennedy at the White House. You yes, know? yes. You know, and I think that Clinton used the imagery. He certainly used the imagery. I think that it hampers, to a certain extent, I think it hampers the Democrats that they're still hearkening back you know, there was Obama, Black Kennedy. I think that the hopes for Obama, I was at the inauguration in 08. I was in Washington because Richard Rossi has these big oh, right, right. educational yeah. programs. And he had 15,000 teenagers, you know, and they put him at the University of Maryland because it was a break and the university rents out its dormitories and you know, the conference facilities, and we went there. But I remember being in Georgetown. Babs and I stayed at the Four Seasons in Georgetown. And I remember sitting at the corner waiting for a red light, and there were three black women in front of us, and they were saying, you know, when Obama gets in, he's going to pay off everybody's mortgages. And then the other one said, yeah, and free education for everybody. But you could tell that Obama was being positioned as kind of a Kennedy-like avatar. And I think there were a lot of hopes that he was going to be a very action-oriented president. It's a heavy burden for anybody to do that because Kennedy himself didn't turn out to be Kennedy. He was snuffed off. Right. You know, but then there, his brother definitely took on the mantle. Robert did, and then he was snuffed out. Mm -hmm. And I think after two assassinations, I think Teddy got the memo. It's really interesting because... Again, talking about these archetypes, and there's a difference between being a hero and being an archetype, because I think an archetype is essentially a representation that a person embodies, and that that representation that they embody, there's a lot of concentric circles around that. And I think there can be things that, for an era, someone can be, yeah. but it doesn't last, kind of like, you know, stardom, <laughs> you know? And then there are those tending more towards history. Lincoln will always be. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting why the light fades out or why it doesn't. And I think our appetite and need as a society for heroes and for archetypes is insatiable, meaning that when Steve Jobs died, they had to fill that vacuum quickly. And it wasn't going to be Tim Cook. He didn't have the innate charisma to do that. Smart, smart businessman, but he didn't have the charisma, nor did he do anything new like Jobs did. So yeah, he became more of a steward of the company than someone who was an archetype of the new technology. And I think also the fact that Jobs started back in the 70s when that was all new harder to be an archetype. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think it's hard to be anything in a society that is so big compared to previous times. I mean, just, yes. you know, the 330 million. When I was born, I think there, you know, in 44, I think uh, the population was 120 million. And it's tripled, you know, it's tripled in our lifetime, essentially. Everybody's got cell phones and everybody's got social media. And my feeling is that I was thinking more and more people were saying, well, who do you think people are going to vote for? And I said, I don't think people vote for anything anymore. I think they vote against. I mean, we have the case in Canada now that I think that 
Trudeau, the younger Trudeau, who was elected because his last name was Trudeau. He was a high school drama teacher, but he had this very, very loyal, almost cult-like following his father did. He didn't disabuse them that he wasn't going to be like his father. I mean, his father was a powerful figure. You know, he was a very consequential figure. And he's turned out to be inconsequential. But part of it is the times, you know, because Canada, you know, the French were making a major play for in Quebec that Quebec would secede, you know, from Canada. And probably it could have happened except for the senior Trudeau because he was this really, really charismatic. He spoke English better than most English people. And he spoke French, I guess, because I, I don't speak French. But he was a constitutional lawyer, and they they finally had their first constitution. Canada's first constitution came in as a result of Pierre Trudeau. You know, and it guaranteed the French certain protections for their culture and for their language. But now I think it actually could. I think not only is there a possibility that Canada could break up, but it would break up into more than one province leaving. Actually, I think the the province that has the biggest bone to pick with the federal government is Alberta. And Alberta is the wealthiest, by far the wealthiest province. It's the youngest province. They've also got the main resource, the gas and oil. Right now, the powers in Ottawa are trying to squelch Alberta, so that there could be a breakup. And it's half American anyway, Alberta. The ancestors of a lot of the Albertans come from Texas and Oklahoma. Hmm. It's the only province that's north-south in its orientation. You know, its orientation is to the states. It's a tough country. It's 3,000 miles wide, and it's only connected by one highway and one railroad. You know, it's a tough country to hold together. But they were held together because they were between the United States and Russia and the Soviet Union, so they were strategically important. But I think that they've faded in importance in the world. I think the Canadians are sufficiently backstage. And someone's looking for a hero right now. There's a interesting character, born in Alberta, but French-speaking, and he's going to become the new leader of the Conservative Party, and I think there's a very strong chance. It's next week, and he'll become the leader, and there's a strong chance that the next election that he would win the country. Mm. But not because people are for him, they're so much against the existing government. So, you know, I think in a internet world, I think it's harder to pull off archetypes. <laughs> you know, when you talk about Trudeau and his father, you know, which makes me think about Mario Cuomo and Andrew. <laughs> a Hamlet-like character, Mario Cuomo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he could have gotten the nomination for the Democrats if he wanted it. I think, but he was conflicted. Right, he came across as very conflicted. It's interesting. I mean, I even look at George Romney and Mitt. Oh yeah. To me, George was a much more towering figure than Mitt. But what's interesting is name recognition. Yeah, that's a big. You one. happen to be talking about Canada, but it's. You know, I think that that is huge yeah. for politicians. You know, it's huge in the movies, too. But in politics, you would hope that it would be people thinking about policy rather than, oh, I heard of him, I'll vote for him or her. Yeah. But it's not. It's that it's familiar. I think that's one of the things to, to reel it in about archetypes. Archetypes are familiar. We know what they stand for. Even if they, in real life, that doesn't hold up under the white light of truth, it's a construct. An archetype is a construct. And Jesus is an archetype, right? I mean, so I think it's really interesting because I think it says much more about us than it does about them. Well, you know, I think the archetype discussion right at the end of our last podcast actually started from a discussion we had about metaphors. Mm -hmm. Metaphors are very necessary because life is just way too complex for anyone to understand. So, you know, it's like the climate, you know, the main messaging of the entire climate 
crises individuals was that it was a greenhouse where there's the greenhouse effect, you know, and that a particular element among the greenhouse gas, I mean, carbon dioxide is one of the what are called the greenhouse gases. But water vapor is much bigger a factor, and methane is a much bigger factor. And, uh, you know, you have all these factors, but they zeroed in on this one little one that we can't smell, we can't taste. And it's lasted now for almost 50 years, that greenhouse. But a greenhouse is a metaphor. It's not exactly a greenhouse. Right. But it simplifies. And I think, you know, if you take archetypes and metaphors, you got pretty much how the modern world operates in all of its communications. Well, and if you look towards what some, such as Mark Zuckerberg, hope is the future, where we are going to be living out our lives online with avatars standing in for us. And a metaphor. Yeah, well, avatar is a ancient, ancient character. Right. In this case, of course, it's a technological construct to stand in for us. I don't think it's just a function of age. I find that horrifying what that is and what that means i think is awful but i think that online for the first time we have that capability to identify ourselves in that way Mm -hmm. and i think that that's dangerous yeah i think it's also because there's so many networks now because there's so much competition for our attention now and because of the 24-7 news cycle when there's not 24-7 worth of news. So there's constant repetition. No matter where you're at on this political spectrum, there's constant repetition. I don't think we even know what that does to our brains. Yeah, But I think hearing the same things over and over and over again does something. Yeah, And I don't think that something is necessarily good. Because I think you stop thinking and that's another place where you then adopt metaphors, you adopt the archetypes, and you're getting further and further away from the truth of the situation as a result. Yeah, yeah. Even what you're doing has an archetypal beginning with the Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland stories. Remember, the, the kids get together, then they are going to create a play. Yes. You know, they create a play, and it's a big hit at the local high school or something. And somebody from Broadway is there, and he says, you guys really have something here. I think we need to take it to Broadway. Well, that's sort of an archetypal model. The other thing is that the whole thing of opening on the road is an archetypal thing. I mean, theater is filled with archetypes and filled with archetypes and metaphors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you realize that. Victoria's Secret, it plays on an archetype, mm-hmm. you know, plays on an archetype. You know, it's really dangerous having a mistress in addition to your wife. So buy some clothes that turns your wife into the mistress. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a leap for many. Uh. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com. Music